I'm Liam Printer and this is The Motivated Classroom. Hello, Falcha, bonjour, bienvenue, bienvenidos, welcome to the Motivated Classroom podcast. Thank you all so much for joining me, for downloading, for listening and for spreading the love of the Motivated Classroom. I had a bit of a down day one of these days this week where I just felt like really overwhelmed with marking and planning and teacher conferences and all these other things going on but you guys keep me going so thank you so much for the coffee and crisps but also just thank you for those who take the time to send a quick message or an email or send out a tweet or write a review it really means the world and it really does keep the podcast going so a huge thank you to all of you take the time to do that and speaking of getting in touch many of you did that last week after the episode with Dr. Chris Martin, all about parental engagement that really seems to have struck a chord. So thank you so much to everyone for doing that. Just remember, keep using the hashtag Motivated Classroom. Lots of people really interested in what Chris was saying, as was I. I could have spoken to him for hours. So go back and listen to that episode if you haven't checked it out already. Now, of course, it is the Motivated Classroom podcast. We are about to get into some Keshtana today, which means questions. It is our Q&A episode. I haven't done one in a while, so bear with me. There's been a lot of questions but I will try my best to get through as many as I possibly can in the time that I have. But I'm really quite bad at this, am I? I never get through more than about two or three, but we'll we'll try and get there and just keep sending them in and I will get to them eventually, I promise. I'll try. So today's Irish word for the day is encore. Encore. What do you think that means? Now, some of you who teach French may be thinking, is it like again, like encore? And it's not. It's the first time I've ever thought of it like that now that I've said it. Encore means the car. And the reason I'm saying that one is because it looks just like the English. It's just spelled with another R at the end. So C-A-R-R, encore. And uh, it just reminds me when I'm saying this of the intricacies of accents and pronunciation because car means car. And even though I say car, a lot of my English speaking friends from the UK, from the US, from Canada, they love, well, I wouldn't say love, I'll take that back. They joke a lot about the way I say any words like car or bar or far. They think it's hilarious. They think I sound like a pirate and they say car, the bar. So they all think that's funny. Now, to me, they sound funny because they say the car and the bar. Well, the, the UK group do anyway, or some of them, I'm not sure how they say it in America, in the bar. So yeah, it's just really interesting, isn't it? We're all native speakers, but have very different accents and pronunciation. Hence why, please, if you're listening to this, don't bang on too much about perfect pronunciation, whatever that is, or perfect accent, whatever that is. Because... It's not really that important. The important thing is to be understood. But if students are not getting the exact right accent or pronunciation or there, you feel like there's still a bit of their underlying accent there, maybe it sounds, you know, like they are from the UK when they're speaking French or maybe they sound like they're from Singapore when they're speaking German, that's really okay. It's okay to keep some of your identity. It's okay to still sound like you're from Indonesia when you're speaking in English as long as you can be understood and as long as what you were saying is understandable to the person receiving it, it's totally okay. And we have different accents. And even the way I spell the word car, C-A-R-R, many people are going, what's an R? Do you mean either or? And I mean, no, it's the letter in the alphabet. I remember when I lived in Canada and ringing up uh, because of a, a parking fine, actually. And I was parked at the hospital, believe it or not. And they, they gave me a fine. So I had to ring up and say, look, I was at the hospital. Give me a break. And they asked me to spell my name. And I said, yeah, sure. No problem. It's P-R. And she went, P. And then what was the next letter? And I said, R. And she went, oh, um, P. No, no, I was looking for the letter. And I said, yeah, R. And she was like, 
R? And I was like, yeah, the letter R, you know, the letter Q, R, S, the one after Q. She was like, oh, R. And I was like, oh my gosh. Okay, so we clearly say things completely in a different way and people laugh and joke about that, but it's true. I have a different accent because I'm from Ireland and it doesn't mean my English, the way I say it, is any less valuable to someone who comes from Cambridge or someone who comes from New York or Australia or wherever. We just have different accents. So think about that when we are teaching our students to speak in what may be for them a third or fourth or fifth language. So, you know, to be nice and patient with that. All right. Thank you so much for listening to me bang on a little bit about accents. And it's just really important to me. I'm not not a fan of when people look for the perfect accent or say you're not pronouncing it properly. Like, what does that even mean? What is proper pronunciation? Just it gets to me a little bit in case you hadn't hadn't noticed that, (laughs) because we do have all different accents. We have different backgrounds and that's okay. So let's get straight into the questions, Liam. Stop talking about the accents. All right. So the first question comes in uh, from an anonymous teacher or they wanted me to keep their name anonymous, which is totally fine. This is a teacher who's quite active in the online domain of Instagram and Twitter and stuff. And by all accounts, I think seems like an absolutely fantastic teacher from the stuff that they post. And they shared this, which I think was wonderful to show a bit of vulnerability, because even those teachers we see on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and we think, oh, they're doing all these wonderful things. They have the same queries and qualms and doubts that we all go through, including me, by the way. And on that note, you know, I'm here to try and answer some questions as someone who has 10, 12 years teaching experience, as someone who has done a doctorate in motivation, and maybe that will help you. But I'm not saying I have all the answers, not at all. I'm just one person. I've done some reading around some stuff and I have some experience. But your experience will count just as much as mine, if not more, in your context. So, Please take whatever I say, as we say in English, with a pinch of salt, which means take it and you don't need to take everything I say. Just 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 go along and have a listen and maybe you agree with some of it. Maybe some of it you don't agree with. And that's that's OK. But the good thing is, is you're informing yourself and we're trying to help each other out. I'm trying to give you some of my experience as someone who's done a doctorate in motivation. But I certainly do not have all the answers about how motivation works. It's so complex that I'm trying to share what I know. But, you know, I hope you understand that I'm certainly not here trying to tell you how to do things. I really hope it doesn't come across that way. So anyway, let's get back to this teacher and what they've written to me about their issues in their context. And I, I say it again, I think a lot of you will resonate with this. It certainly resonates with me. And the teacher says, every year I have a group of two or three middle ability year nines. So year nine is around the age 13 or 14 who hate taking part in speaking and interactive activities. I manage to get them to behave, but we rarely get to that point where we can enjoy the lesson without some resistance. And then the teacher goes on to say that they think it's worse in their subject than it is in others because they've been told that the children engage better in other calmer subjects. And they ask me what I would suggest. So first of all, I would say that maybe they're not as great in adverted commas in other subjects. It just depends on the teacher, what they're interested in, various things going on. But you they, you may be getting a report back from a teacher saying, oh, no, they're, they're wonderful in mathematics. But actually, you know, maybe they're not. Maybe they're daydreaming. They're just quiet. Who knows? So first, I wouldn't compare yourself to other teachers and how they are. There's so many things going on there. Now, in terms of in your class and they are not speaking and they're not participating or if they are, it's with a lot of resistance. First of all, I want to say I am with you and I'm sure many other teachers are. I've said this many times on the podcast, actually, that for me, 
I always struggle the most with year 10s. Now, that's the year after what you're talking about. But essentially, it's that middle of puberty age when teenagers are going through all sorts of crazy changes in their heads, in their bodies, in their emotions. And sometimes the nicest, cutest, sweetest kids that you had in year seven and eight when they were age 11 and 12 suddenly don't want to participate or say anything or be involved when they get to age 14, 15. And we have to remember that a lot of this is because of what's going on in their lives and in their bodies. It's not to do with us and the lesson. And I have this struggle every year with always the same kind of age group. And I think I've said this before, but for me, I always thought it was me. But actually... It happens every year. So now I'm starting to think, okay, it's either the content in those specific units, which I need to change, or it's to do with age and development. So I think that's the first thing. So one, please don't be too hard on yourself. We all have this. Now, I understand where you're coming from. We have all got those frustrations and we focus on those one or two students that don't seem to engage and that don't seem to give back to the class the way we want them to. And that kind of eats away at us, doesn't it? You know, you're like, why are they resisting? Why can't I get them involved? So here's a few tips that I would use in that situation. First and foremost, I think it's important to remind ourselves of the three basic psychological needs that need to exist for someone to be intrinsically motivated, interested by something. Now, again, this is all sorts of robust research across decades in all different fields, and it is autonomy, competence and relatedness. So more than likely what's happening in the class for those two students at that time is not meeting those psychological needs. So I would be thinking, how can I do that? Now, I'm currently reading a really excellent book, Teach Like a Champion 3.0 by Doug Limov, and it's fantastic. I'm going to have to do a few episodes on it, I think. And some of the things he talks about is Building relationships is so much more than just talking to that student about piano outside the lesson or saying, oh, you also like the basketball and the Los Angeles Lakers. Oh, did you see the game at the weekend? Yes, those things help. And the students see us as a human and someone who cares about them. But actually getting them to relate to your content and finding your content interesting will build the trust in you as a teacher and you will inspire them because they're interested and related to your content. So that's the first thing I would say think about the content that you are using with that year group at that time. The other students in the class may be motivated by all sorts of other things, so it doesn't really apply as much to them. But for these two students who maybe don't want to be there, maybe they didn't pick Spanish or French or German or whatever it is they're doing, and they would just prefer to be doing a different subject at that time. So how can we engage them? Think autonomy. So what subject or what thing can I do in my lesson that will provide these two kids with more autonomy, more creativity, more freedom. So maybe that is co-creating something, co-creating an image or a scene or a character or something together. So maybe you're doing a unit on the house and home and the city or something like that. Often these are frequent units that I hear about. So we're doing that unit. And instead of just doing the normal way we might teach it, which is here's a list of the vocab and we fill the gaps here and we join the dots over here and we write them down. Let's, how can we get them involved? Well, maybe it's we say to them, OK, I want to find out what you're interested in. So maybe you find out one of them's into skateboarding. You say, OK, how would you design the ideal city for skaters? What would that look like for you? And I can see that they would probably start to be a bit more interested. Oh, well, it would have like three ramps. Maybe they're saying that stuff to you in English. You keep responding in Spanish and gradually by giving them some autonomy, 
you will start to spike some interest for them. Now that's kind of the first catalyst autonomy. So have a think about whatever your unit is and how can you get their ideas, their creativity into it? Can they design something, but with you in the class, not something they go off and do at home. I'm talking about with you. So you say, here's a blank canvas and it's a city and it's a city called the city of Mr. Mrs. whatever your name is. Let's say speaker, because I'm looking at a speaker right in front of me. So Mr. Speaker's town, but you're going to help me to create this. So what would it look like for you? So I want you to write down on a card two things your city would have to have. Now you're saying all that in the language. Two things your city would have to have for it to be your ideal city. Maybe that's an enormous ice cream truck that's free all year round. Maybe it's a huge ski terrain pieced mountain thing. <laughs> I couldn't think of the word there even though I live near the mountains here. Ski pieced in the middle of the t- city. Maybe it's an amazing coffee shop that sells all sorts of incredible chocolates but something and you see what they've written on their card and of course you make sure that as you go around you are keeping a little checklist so you have a a list with you and you're writing down you know if more than one student has said chocolate shop you might write that down because that's clearly something they're into but you're going to walk past those two kids and see what they've written and if one of them writes a skate park or one of them writes a football stadium or one of them writes a theatre and free musicians and free music well then you get that in you say okay so what would we have so surely we'd want some music so what kind of music would we have in there yeah free musicians lovely okay and what would you call them and you get the name from them and you're building it together so any way you can get autonomy and co-creation with them is going to spark a bit of autonomy for them Now, the second one, of course, is competence. So by you taking their ideas and inserting them into your your amazing city that you've invented, and then they might have to write about that city, then they might have to draw it, then they might have to tell each other about it, they'll have to add things. So you, you bring it on and bring it forward. Those type of things are what will stay with them because they'll feel like they put the name of it, it's their ideas, but they'll also feel competent. They'll feel like my ideas count. When I said that Spanish word in class, she listened and she took it on and she nodded at me and went, yeah, that's really nice. Okay, let's go with that. And those are the little things that we need to spark. And then your relationship is becoming better with them because now they are a bit more related to your content. The content is no longer abstract and about grammar and nouns and pronouns and vocab lists and people in other countries that they can't relate to maybe at just that time of year nine but maybe it's to do with them. So I hope I've done a little bit of justice of answering that question, but I really want you to not be hard on yourself. We all have those struggles and I certainly have them. And I just think whenever I'm in those situations, I genuinely do sit down and go, okay, how can I give those two or three students some more autonomy? How can I make them more heard in my classroom? How can I get their ideas in there? And I sometimes go back to that three card draw that they have written down or drawn three things that have interest to them, like animals or music or sport. I'll find their one and I'll try and think of an interactive activity where they get to create something in the target language, but to do with one of their interests. So if they're really interested in horse riding, it'll be something to do with horses. And yeah, maybe that takes a couple of lessons, but they're getting loads of inputs from you. They're improving their language. They're hearing it. They're listening to it. You know, they don't need to be doing exercises or role plays all the time. It can just be from listening and being enthusiastically building this town together, whatever it may is. So I hope that helps a little bit for you. Now, the second question comes in from Anna Burke. And Anna asked about something that we all have a struggle with. 
and that I am not sure I'm going to be able to answer. But it's worth talking about because we all come up against it. And Anna basically says, how on earth do I stop or dissuade my students from using online translating tools? Google Translate is the one that we all come against all the time. Also, there's a growing issue with older A-level students, she says Leaving Cert, which is the Irish version, accessing complete answers to formal examination questions. And then, and sometimes these are from good resources and then they pay for them and they use them. So how can I stop this? Well, Anna, they are brilliant questions and I am not sure I can help you out there, but I'll try. The translator thing, honestly, I think it's just one of those things we need to go with the times and we need to accept that this is going to be part of the language learning journey for the vast majority of students who are in schools or in situations and contexts that they can afford to have phones and computers around them. It's just going to be part of going forward. So we need to work with it and not against it. So I will, what I do sometimes in order to attack this is right from the beginning, I tell them that I want them not to use Google Translate. And your listener is going, yes, I've done that too. That didn't help. But what I do is I say to them, look, my name is Printer. My name is not Algorithm Robot. I am not here to correct an algorithm's work. I'm here to help you in your journey. So if you copy and paste some Google Translate and hand that up as your work, well, what you're asking me to do is correct the people who work for Google on their algorithms for language learning and help them out. And I'm sorry, but I just don't get paid enough to do that. I'm not I'm not willing to do that. And they kind of laugh and they kind of see, I see where you're coming from. And then what I'll do with them as well is we'll do a few exercises with Google Translate to try and show them how flawed it can be. So we'll typically use the word look, for example, because that word look in English means all sorts of different things. You can look up, look into, look at, look around, look after, all sorts of things. So I'll show them how flawed that is if you just type in the word look and you're going to get all these different words. And then I show them word reference because I know they're going to use something. So I encourage them from day one to use word reference. And we go on wordreference.com and we start to look up some other things that are there and we get them to look into that and, and how they can see the different contexts and how much more useful it is. And then I read a blog recently and I'm afraid I can't think of the name of the person. If I can find it, I'll put it in the program notes. And he was saying about he how he gets his students to use dictionaries. Now, we don't use dictionaries in our school because they all have laptops. So in this blog, he was showing them how looking things up in the dictionary can work sometimes and not others. So I think he had the word like nager, which in French means swam, like as in the past tense, he or she swam. And if they look up nager, they're not going to find it. They're going to find nager, E-R, it's a different spelling. It's not the E in the accent. And he's trying to show them that that's called an infinitive. And we look up the infinitive, the name of the verb. If we look it up in a past tense or in one of its conjugated forms, we're not going to find it. And so showing them how to do that in the dictionary. And I show them the same thing on word reference. And then we do it backwards. Of course, we look up swam and you can't find that. What you'll find is swim. And you would want, you couldn't look up, you wouldn't look up swam. You'd look up the verb to swim. So trying to show them how those things work. Now, in terms of Google Translate and then putting them into full paragraphs, well, what we'll do is we'll sometimes backwards do one or two or I'll translate something in and I'll translate it again and translate it again and then do it back. So it might go from English to French, French to Spanish, Spanish to German and then German back to English and they'll just see how awful it is by that stage and to show them that there's intricacies in language. And finally, I just tell them that it's really obvious 
when you use Google Translate, I can see it and it's academic dishonesty. And then they, they're kind of like, well, what do we do when we don't know words? So I say first try word reference. But if you want to look up a couple of words in Google Translate, you can. But any more than three for me is too many. So if you look up more than three in a row, then for me, you are now plagiarizing or you are looking up something that is not your work. So, if, you know, if, if they looked up something like I went to the shops yesterday, that's too much. But if they just looked up the word shop or went to, that's OK. And we have to go with it on this, I think, with the translator. But trying to show them how obvious it is for you to see is one of the ways around it. And trying to show them how we use these translators properly and how we can use reputable sources like word reference, which will show us all the different contexts. Now, yes, that takes time in the class to show them, but it's worth it. And actually, word reference is very powerful. It's got all the conjugations, it's got everything. It's got phrases at the bottom, like specific idiomatic expressions that use that word. So if you look up the word, you know, milk, for example, in Spanish, you'll get all the phrases that go along with leche. And it's really interesting. You'll come across all these wonderful things. So I think my response, Anna, is go along with it. Now, in terms of finding answers online, that's something that unfortunately it is a reality. And again, I think you just need to show them that it's really not their work. They're copying. It's plagiarism and that you're correcting someone else's work and you're there to help them. And it all comes back to building those relationships with them and showing them that I'm here to help you. I don't want to spend my time correcting a computer program. But have those conversations, be frank and open rather than just scolding them or, uh, you know, giving out, as we would say in Ireland, to them about things that they've already done that annoy you. Just have those conversations up front. Like, I know this is part of life and you're going to look up translators, but here's how we can use it properly that will help your language learning and your language acquisition. And I also tell them about what language acquisition is. You know, we acquire language by listening and reading. So if you're looking up a full sentence and you get that sentence, the proper sentence on Google Translate, for example, and you've read it and you process it, then OK. But I don't want you to copy it down. That's the important thing. So have those conversations. Oh, 22 minutes in already. How is that possible? OK, I will try and get through one more question. Um, let's take this one. So Sophie Louise, who goes by Soph Bryson on Instagram, she asked me a very quick question. How on earth do I make spelling or grammar fun for the younger ones? So I'm going to break that into two parts, uh, Sophie. I hope that's OK. First spelling and then grammar. So for the younger ones, I'm going to assume that you mean under the age of 11, so primary school age. Now, first bit of quite exciting news is that there's some brilliant, brilliant interviews on the way with real experts in the field of primary elementary school teaching of younger children around languages. They are coming very shortly. One with a researcher, Professor Quint Oga Baldwin, who I cited so many times in my thesis and in my doctorate. It was wonderful to speak to him. He focuses on research in Japan with very young learners of English. Really fascinating stuff. And then followed up, I've got a wonderful teacher, Marianne de Best from the Netherlands, who teaches Dutch in primary school settings with loads of comprehensible input. And so that is coming. So hang on in there because I've had so many questions about the younger students, but I don't teach primary. I've done it at workshops and working with other schools. I've gone to schools and worked with their primary team and then taught primary school children and with them in the room and they get to see how comprehensible input works with it. And actually on the first part of the three part workshop, I'm delivering on comprehensible input and the practical guide to using it. The primary teachers were able to share so many of their wonderful routines with us in the secondary classroom, which was great. So in terms of the spelling thing and the grammar thing, I'm going to start with the spelling. 
You can make the spelling fun by inventing characters and then making their names really silly. So really good examples of this are you're inventing a character together with them and let's say it's a bottle, a water bottle they had on their table and it turns out to have really long hair and it's got such long hair it's called Taylor Quift because their quiff is amazing. But it's not just called Taylor Quift. This character really wants to emphasise how great their quiff is, their hair. So they spell it with four Fs. So how do we spell a class we spell? Spell it Q-U-I-F-F-F-F-T. And then we would have to say Taylor Quift. And the students love this. They find it hilarious or we'll put a Z at the end of any name that usually ends in an S. So for example, Lewis, we'd say Louis. And then it would spell it L-U-I-S-Z-Z-Z. So this is, you know, give them the spelling of those funny letters. And and then I'll ask someone else in the class, so what's your name? And then they might say James and say, oh, do you also spell it with the four Z's at the end? They go, oh, yeah, of course, all the time. And they'll joke and say, "Okay, class, how do we spell James's name then? Is it J-A-M-E-Z or is there an S first? Oh, there's an S first. Sorry, James, and we'll write that up. So instead of just doing the alphabet with them, spelling out funny names and adding bits on or this year we had Patricio was the name of our invisible character that we invented. Patricio is a diamond. He's Spanish. Well, I say he, they, because they are non-binary. With my year eights, we had a non-binary diamond called Patricio. But it's Patricio, whoa, 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 whoa. He's got four O's at the end because his parents are called O and O. And that is genuinely the character we built with our year eights. But I did all that because I wanted them to learn some of the more difficult letters in the alphabet. So I'd be like, Does this, is it Patricio spelt with a J, like Patricio J? And some of them will laugh and say yes and say, no, no, we've established it's O, 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 O at the end. There's no J. And does anyone else here have a word or name beginning with J? And so you circle it and you go round it like that. That's how you bring in the spelling. Silly, funny names of characters and places, changing things at the end, adding things at the end of their names, seeing if they can spell each other's names out. Then you might quickly do a bang the table and say spelling go and then if someone can put up their hand up and spell in French or Spanish everyone's name at their table including the secret characters with their secret letters that you've figured out with your class so maybe secretly Amanda spells her name Amanda but with a silent J at the end and they'll all find that hilarious and if that member of the class can say A-M-A-N-D-A J, silent J, then of course that table wins a prize. And if they can't do it, well, you pass it on to the next table. So they realise the importance of spelling. So that would be the first one. Now, in terms of grammar for the young ones, I'm afraid, Sophia, I'm going to be quite blunt with this one. Just don't do it. And I I know that there's teachers listening going, but I have to, I have to teach them grammar. And I would personally say, no, you don't. And this is me. This is just my take on it. Remember, this is just my take. Younger students and beginner students do not need excessive grammar lessons. They are not at that stage of acquisition that they're ready to learn the precision and the accuracy. They just want to communicate, listen and read it and understand it. Don't worry about precision. Don't worry about grammar. They can get into that on year three or four of the learning of the language when they're older and maybe already have quite an advanced level. But if we start teaching them grammar points when they're age seven or eight or nine and they're young, we are going to lose them forever. They're going to think that that's what languages is when really it should be just about communication, listening to its stories, building characters, co-creation, just having fun with it. Even for me, that's the same with year eights and nines. It's only around year 10. So on their third year of learning, age 15, that they'll start to get any types of grammar bits for me. And even today, 
I was in class and walking around and they had their folder open at the grammar section and I realised it was pretty much empty. We're like eight weeks into school, but we haven't really done any yet. And that's okay. And I'm talking about my year eights and nines there. They do have a little section for grammar points, a little pop up grammar that happens now and again. But we don't drill it. It's just when they ask a question about it, but it was essentially blank. And that's okay because they're really progressing quickly. And if you could see what they're able to do just from lots of comprehensible inputs, from listening and reading, you can see that we don't need those grammar lessons and fill the gap worksheets and verb tables when they're that young. They just want to listen and communicate and have fun and co-create things. That's what we're after. And actually, now that I say it, maybe it's no surprise that it's at year 10 when they seem to zone out. Maybe it's not puberty. Maybe it's because that's when I start talking about some grammar stuff. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> Who knows? Now, don't get me wrong. I love grammar. I'm really into it. I'm a linguist. I could talk about it all day. And if a student wants to geek out with me about language, they can come at lunch and we can talk about it. We can talk about the grammar endings and the syntax syntax. But really, these students are already doing great. These students are really communicating in an advanced way without doing formal grammar lessons. We'll do a little bit of pop-up grammar now and again. What I'm trying to say is that the joy and the love of language learning for most people, not people like me and you because we're linguists and we love it, but for the 98% who aren't language teachers and who don't want to be, they just want to be able to communicate and listen and understand the class and follow along with it. So we don't need to give them those grammar lessons. So I hope that wasn't too too blunt for you, but that is genuinely my, my take. I don't think we need any explicit grammar activities when they're that young. It should all be about co-creation, creativity, enjoying themselves, listening and reading to funny stories and creating characters, special interviews with people in the class, learning about them, their past, all of those type things. So I hope that makes sense. Okay, there's our Q&A. Almost 30 minutes. Wow, I thought it was going to be 20. So there you go. I hope I answered some questions. Please do keep in touch and let me know if you have any other questions you'd like me to deal with on the podcast. Next week, I'm actually going to deal with one of those questions in a full episode. Many people have been asking me about the physical setup of my classroom because I now and again post pictures and it changes a lot. And that is the truth. It does change a lot, even though I share a classroom and I've got very heavy tables. It really takes some time. But next week, I'm going to talk about the physical setup of my classroom, how I seat students, where I put them. Do we use desks? When do we not use desks? How do I move them around? All those type of things. So I hope you'll tune in for that one. And of course, we can't end without me saying a massive Gurmahagiv thank you to all of the patrons of the podcast. There's now 51 of you. Thank you so much. If you'd like to join them, become a patron of the podcast, go to patreon.com, the motivated classroom, and you can sign up to buy me a coffee or a pack of crisps once a month just to say thank you for these episodes. I'd really appreciate it. But if you can't and you're not in a position to do that financially, no problem at all. Please keep listening for free. This is out there for everyone to listen to and just pass it on to your friends and hopefully they'll listen too. So, of course, we need to end our wonderful episode today. Thank you to the listeners for the questions with our Irish word for the day. Can you remember how to say a car in Irish? It is on car. Gurmila Mahagav agus slánawalia. The Motivated Classroom podcast is an original production by Liam Printer. I'm at Liam Printer on Twitter and my YouTube channel is Liam Printer, The Motivated Classroom. Full podcast notes with links to resources are available on my website, liamprinter.com. For more, find and follow the Motivated Classroom podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Graphics and music are provided by Paul Mahan. Intro clips are thanks to the wonderful multilingual staff at the International School of Lausanne.